Hi, this is Russ from episode 42 with a special announcement. Do you want to meet John Hamer, Lindsay Hansen-Park, John Delan, and Seth Bryant? Those four and many more will be presenting at Sunstone Toronto on April the 8th, 2017. Join us for the first Canadian event of this kind. Go to sunstonetoronto.com for more information and to register. Thanks for listening to another episode of Project Zion. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts the Restoration offers for today's world. Project Zion is sponsored by the Latter-day Seekers team from Community of Christ. Welcome to Common Grounds, where we explore what Community of Christ has in common with other faith communities. And our conversations currently are about the liturgical or Christian calendar. So a brief review on the Christian calendar. Through the seasons and holy days of the liturgical calendar, we relive the story of faith the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus that binds us in Christian community. In each season of the calendar, we participate with our whole being through scripture, symbol, and hymnody. And as we learn more about the liturgical calendar and live it as a spiritual practice, we are able to deepen our understanding of discipleship and of Christian community. So, The calendar begins four weeks before Christmas with the season of Advent, moves through the seasons of Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and Ordinary Time. And today we're kind of in the middle of that as we move through Lent and approach Holy Week, which culminates with Easter. So today we're talking about Palm or Passion Sunday, the first day of Holy Week, And our guest today is Christian Scoresmith. Christian is an ordained minister with Community of Christ, and he has served in the greater Pacific Northwest area. And we are, in fact, today sitting in beautiful uh, West Seattle of Washington State. So, Christian, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, so I've worked for the church for a little over 10 years, and not just in the Pacific Northwest, but also in Europe and uh and a little bit in Arizona as well and uh in varying capacities uh as, sometimes as an executive minister sometimes as the educational minister but really one of my passions has always been worship as sort of the prime time of the church the the church week um that's when everybody's paying attention and so it seems like we should be we should be putting our best out there and it's a chance for us to really experiment and be formational and have fun with it uh, and be intentional. And I really like worship to be that way. 
Great. Yeah. Well, Christian, then this topic today must have been of interest to you. Absolutely. As uh, Easter week tends to be one where we put a lot of focus in community of Christ in what we're doing together. And it's probably one of the times that we're more apt to be in tune with the liturgical calendar. I would probably say yes, that's, that's certainly true. So tell us a little bit about what you discovered as you were preparing to talk about Palm Sunday. What exactly is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday uh, commemorates and uh, remembers Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you may you can't see it on the podcast, but I'm actually doing air quotes there. So it's triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, uh, which is recorded actually in all four of the Gospels, reported in all four of the Gospels in a little different ways, of course. But this is the beginning of Jesus' final week alive or before the before the crucifixion and uh and there's a lot of theological as well as uh missional and formational uh stuff that's going on on Palm Sunday. It's a really exciting Sunday. So Palm Sunday would be really crucial to our kind of understanding as being disciples of Jesus as so much of the gospel kind of points to this. Mm-hmm. to this uh, time coming into Jerusalem. So why did you use air quotes when you said triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Well, because I think um, Christians, I, maybe I can't speak for all Christians, but for, you know, since I'm community of Christ, I can speak about my own experience with my people. So I think there's two problems with what we think of when we come to Palm Sunday. One is that there's this possibility, there's this temptation to just skip over the Passion Week. And we'll talk about that a little later, I think, in the in the podcast. But when I put air quotes around it, it's because I think we really, too often, we miss the satire of the occasion. Uh, we might get the irony, which is actually really just hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the crowd one day adulating and praising and, uh, and celebrating Jesus as their king, and just a couple days later, choosing a, a, a criminal to, to be saved rather than him and sending him to the cross, right? So there's that irony. We all get that part. That's what we really talk about. But we don't miss the satire of the entrance. And that's something we don't talk about enough. And really, we're missing a whole dimension of, of the gospel story that I think is really theologically fruitful. So when you're talking about the entrance, there's a scripture in Matthew, the 21st chapter and 5th verse, that says, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. So is that part of the satire you're referring to? Well, yes. And this is what's so great about uh, when we actually bring, when we actually look at the scriptures, it's really, a, there's some polyvalence there. There's a lot of layers of meaning. And that scripture is actually a direct reference, since Matthew loves to talk about the Old Testament or the, the, the Hebrew scriptures and make reference to the Hebrew scriptures. That's actually almost a direct quote of Zechariah 9, 9, or chapter 9, verse 9, where he talks about, uh, Zechariah talks about uh, your king being uh, riding both victorious and lowly at the same time on the back of a donkey. Now, the thing is, we have typically in the past talked about, uh, at least in community of Christ experience, we've talked about the donkey being um, a, a humiliating animal. Or you know, maybe we're thinking about old movies where miners were trying to pull these things through the canyons or whatnot, and they're stubborn and, you know... Um, and maybe we were getting them mixed up with mules. I don't know. But the the idea was that uh, we thought that because Jesus was entering on a donkey, that therefore he was a new kind of king. 
But actually, as both Matthew and Zechariah are referencing here, that there was this tradition, this, under, this cultural understanding in, in Eastern cultures that the donkey was the symbol of peace. So if a king was returning from war or, or, or entering a city that he just took violently, he would enter on a horse, which was a, an animal that signified violence or war or conquest. And the donkey was no less regal, no less uh, important, no less uh, uh, praiseworthy and noble, but it was the symbol of peace that he could ride in on a lower animal, uh, closer to the people. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem in peace, then? Yes. I think Community of Christers are all okay. I mean, that's the story we're we're comfortable telling. Uh, But then we we drop it just at the point where it's getting its most satirical. Because when when we're not moving it to the next level, where we're saying Jesus is a king, even a lowly or a humble king, but he's still a king. Right. And so then we bring in all of these kingly powers and this kingly, you know, we start talking about the majesty of, of Jesus and his, and his power and his throne, right? And by, and by association, then we get a piece of that majesty and that power and that throne and we're empowered, oh, right? That makes us feel better. Yes, absolutely. And then it becomes, then we're adopting that, that position of power. We're adopting the language of domination over people as the source of power. Whereas Jesus, if we take the whole context of what Passion Week is, Jesus is coming as a king. But what is this triumph about when Jesus is entering as a king? We always focus on what our contemporary notions or even sort of medieval notions of kings are. Uh, But here, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem at the beginning of Passion Week, to be a king is to be the victim. And what Jesus means by victory is actually suffering. What Jesus means by power, entering in this very explicitly powerful image, but then ending the week in the most vulnerable of positions, power is then equated with vulnerability. And praise is equated with torture. It results in torture. It leads to torture. Right? So Jesus is not just occupying the space of what we think kings should be. Jesus is actually redefining and not in the not in the simple easy way like oh Jesus wants to be a nice king or a humble king or a generous king which is still a king, right? Just a good sure. king. And that's good, right? We'd rather have a good king than a bad king, but Jesus is actually redefining what it means to be a king in the most radical sense. And I think if we don't play up the satire of that, then we're missing this dimension, this theological dimension of this performance that Jesus is doing. So it's really easy for us then to look at Palm Sunday and take it apart from what else happens in Holy Week. Mm. And what you're saying is it must be looked at in the whole picture of what happens. It is the beginning act that sets the stage for what will take place. And it really only makes sense once we get to crucifixion and then resurrection. Absolutely. And and we have to remember that everybody who is reading the story... uh, knows the ending. If you know anything about the story of Jesus, you know how it ends. And so that's there, even when you're telling the story. Um, and one of, one of the key things I think we need to be aware of when we're telling a story is, when are we telling it to make ourselves feel good? And how much are we willing to to massage the truth or massage the message to change things in order to really focus on what makes us feel good about ourselves rather than the challenge that the gospel presents. Ah. And the challenge here definitely is 
the challenge to look at this story in a counter-cultural way. Yes. Look at King in a counter-cultural way. Yeah. So when I was reading a little bit about how Palm Sunday is observed in uh, worship settings, I learned that there are specific colors and symbols that go along with a Palm Sunday. And the color purple seems to be associated with Palm Sunday. And is that because we tend to want to look at the majesty of Jesus? You know, I totally think that that's part of it. I really do, since, since, the, since purple is considered the regal color. But actually, the color is, uh, th- there's different traditions around the color. Uh, I think, let's stick with the, the, the discussion of the purple for a moment, um, but in traditions that generally use the color purple, they also use it at the time of Advent, which uh, sort of links visually the, the, the Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem with the Advent of uh, well, of, of his birth, okay. right? So it's sort of almost the second coming, the culmination. I think there's like a, a, a visual resonance there that's being made. But in these traditions, also, the color purple is associated not necessarily with royalty, but with penance and humility and even melancholy. And purple is also brought in during Lent in these particular traditions. And when I'm talking about traditions, I'm talking about Presbyterians and Methodists who use uh, purple a lot during the Passion Week. There's also other traditions that use red uh, as their liturgical color. And those are more like the, the United Church of Christ, the Roman Catholics, the Reformed traditions. They use the color red and also red for uh, passion and for Lent. And of course, red, as you might just associate it with, you know, it's, it's the color of blood and fire, but also God's love and martyrdom. And they use those same, that same color at uh, not just at Passion, but also with the cross and Pentecost, but not, interestingly, with Advent. So they're making actually a, a different association, different like resonance with different holidays if you use purple versus red. So it should be noted here that a preacher's tie color is not necessarily liturgical <laughs> because Advent, everyone's always wearing red ties or Christmas colors or whatnot. So... So that's a good point. (laughs) In Community of Christ, we're only recently beginning to explore how the visual aspect Mm -hmm. of a holiday affects how we understand it. Yeah. Well, and certainly in any... In any sort of unified sense, we've we've had banners and felt banners and crafts and stuff, you know, in worship settings. But it hasn't been like tied to the greater narrative of what's happening over the course of the whole year and the story of where we are in in the scriptures. Uh, so I think that's one of the one of the great things that we're inheriting now from the Christian tradition is this the whole new dimension of how to make these links between uh, different theological and and festival. Occasions. So are there other visual aspects to Palm Sunday? Are there symbols associated with this as well? Yes, there are. In fact, so as you might imagine, Palm Sunday, palm fronds are the traditional sort of symbol for this uh, because the, as the tale goes, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, it was typical in that culture when someone important is coming along to cover the road with something. And since Jews were gathering in Jerusalem for the celebration of Sukkoth, they have four or five traditional branches that they need to gather in order for those for, the, for that celebration. And one of those is palm fronds. And so John reports that they were laying palm fronds on the ground as Jesus' donkey uh, walked, uh, walked by, so they, the donkey would walk over them. Uh, interestingly enough, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't mention anything about palms. Uh, they use cloaks and bulrushes, which 
may not be as interesting, you know, as, as striking an image, maybe. As the palm uh, fronds? Yeah, the, the palm fronds. And also, though, that palm fronds had been a, uh, a symbol for a long time in Near Eastern cultures. In Egypt, actually, palm fronds were associated with funerals and mourning. So that adds a fascinating aspect to, that, to the whole Passion Week thing, you know, sort of this pre-echo, um, this forecasting of what's going to happen. But then in Greco-Roman culture, palm fronds were, were associated with victory. Um, either military or peaceful rule, but victory nonetheless. And so there's that element that's brought in to the Palm Sunday story. So even now we refer to this as the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem as a victorious um, entry. Well, you say even now, but actually that's not how it was originally portrayed. Actually, that, um, there's some evidence. Uh, there's, there's, there's one writer, John Pimera Brown, who wrote in, in 2000 in his book Israel and Hellas, which Hellas being the, the word for Greece, so, so Greco-Roman culture, um, his claim that, that the triumphal procession wasn't a common understanding of what was going on until the 13th century. And if you think about the 13th century, what was going on in Europe, in Christendom at that time, that's the, that's the Middle Ages when kingly processions sort of were really taking on uh, a, a new social importance and uh, military dynamic, especially woven in with uh, the support of the church. The church was also vying to to play a part in politics. So um, you can see how these these images would have been layered on top of each other for the benefit of their cultural understanding. I'm not trying to be Machiavellian or anything, but um, you can see how people are always expressing their times. They're always expressing something that's going on either around or inside them uh, with the way they conceive of their, uh, their holidays and their, their rituals. And that includes community of Christ. You know, absolutely. We experience yeah. the different aspects of the liturgical calendar based on our understanding and our community and our times, our culture mm-hmm. and context. So has Community of Christ been observing Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday for a long time? In my experience, now I'm only I'm only in my forties, right? So and I remember celebrating Palm Sunday. But it was never like what I'm seeing uh, out of the traditions of other of other communities, and there's some really great things like actual processions, actually moving either the congregation. If there's any worship element that you ha- should have in Palm Sunday, I'm convinced now it should be movement. This is the Sunday to get people out of the pews, out of their seats, right? Um, but in Community of Christ, that hasn't been my experience necessarily that we've we've been doing that, and I think part of it has been our struggle. With, and this might have been like us expressing where we are, is our struggle with the powers and principalities. And we've had this really conflicted relationship about uh, Palm Sunday because we've, we've recognized the, the, the rule of Jesus, but we're also really cautious about how power influences us and our desire to have power. Because in our own history, power has been a corrupting force. Um, in our, uh, we recognize, I think, in North America that uh, the association of political power with with religious ideology has some real uh, some real dangers to it. I think, and I think we, as a community, for a long time, uh, we've been we've been hesitant to really embrace the kingly narrative because of that of that discomfort 
of the the encounter of political power with religious force or religious influence. Which again is part not just of our religious culture, but with American culture and separation of church and state. It's very mm-hmm. different than the European culture that you shared about the um, the idea of the victorious or the uh, regal procession. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, so, uh, but back to the symbol of the palm fronds, actually. So, uh, moving up into Europe, of course, during, it's, it's difficult to get palm fronds in medieval Europe, right, or, or even classical Europe. And so what they would do, actually, is they would use just whatever kind of branches they had on hand. And so whether it was yew or maple or whatever, they would use those branches, and they started calling the Sunday yew Sunday, or whatever kind of Sunday they would have. It wasn't Palm Sunday, because that's not what they were having, right? Um, so, uh, and in fact, in, in Germany, they were using uh, pussy willows. Uh, or not Germany, but in the in Russian Orthodox tradition, they were using pussy willows. And uh, so, I don't know if they called it Pussy Willow Sunday, which might be a stretch for Community of Christers to do. But uh, what is fascinating to me here is this, this adaptation of the holiday takes place wherever it goes, and that is totally scriptural because remember, the palms are only mentioned in John, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, people are just using whatever they have on hand. Whatever uh, the branches yeah, may be. Yeah, whatever the branches are, whatever the um, – in Matthew Mark and, Luke and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they use rushes and their cloaks. They actually make a bigger sacrifice. Of so I want to go back to something you said earlier when you talked about why the people were out collecting branches to begin with. Yes, the Jewish festival of Sukkoth, forgive my pronunciation there, my understanding is it's also the uh, festival of tabernacles where they remember uh, sheltering, they remember sheltering in the wilderness and they're they're celebrating God's presence with them. Uh, And so they, they build sort of these temporary huts out of branches. So they were all carrying these in to Jerusalem to, to celebrate that. It's also known as the Festival Booths, I think. Yeah. Right. So as we um, move forward then, we have to acknowledge that a lot of the traditions that we would consider Christian traditions around Palm Sunday, um, we need to look a little deeper and remember that Jesus was in fact an observant Jew and was with the people who would have been practicing Jewish festival rights at the time. Absolutely. In fact, if we take Jesus out of his Jewish context, we're losing 90% of the meaning of the of, of what's going on. And as we've already talked about, all of the symbols that we've talked uh, that we've mentioned have had their roots in a context in Jesus's lived context. Um, and that's not just political, but also you know, the faithful context. So what might we see on a Palm Sunday in a Community of Christ congregation? What might be the typical kind of way a Community of Christ a congregation observes Palm Sunday? It's the, Palm Sunday is not one of those that we've, I think, coalesced around a typical Sunday. And I think it's because so many different congregations have different dynamics. Some of them don't have a lot of children. And uh, and the thing is, Palm Sunday is really a great Sunday for crafts and movements. I mean, if kids are not making poster board palms to to wave, then talk to your children's school thing. I mean, they should be doing something. They, you know, this is like crafty Sunday. So what's different about different congregations is some of them um, are electing, and it changes. It's not like every congregation does the same thing every year, but some of them elect to not do a Monday, Thursday, or a Good Friday service, something like that. And for those congregations for whatever whatever reason decide not to do anything 
uh, during the Passion Week, then there's this complication of if you don't do anything during the Passion Week, then you go right from Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, to Jesus' resurrection on, on Easter morning. So we're missing some important pieces there. Yes, you go, the, the story doesn't make sense. Like, why is Jesus resurrected? He was just walking in as a king, right? So, um, so one of the ways... Uh, one of the ways we've been experimenting with it in recent years has been to blend uh, Palm and Passion Sunday. So sort of to tell both sides of the story so that when people come uh, on Easter morning, they re- they know why why it's important. Right? They have some sort of background, which is um, like on the emotional roller coaster of worships, having a Palm and Passion Sunday, trying to cram into one regular Sunday hour uh, or hour and a half uh, to almost entirely different storylines and feels and emotions. Uh, it can be done really well, but it's, it, it really des- uh, deserves a lot of attention. And so that's why congregations, some of them have a lot of other dynamics to, to weigh. So that's why I think we haven't, like, have, have, we don't have a standard practice yet. For Palm Sunday. Yeah, for Palm Sunday, yeah. Passion Sunday sounds a little complicated to come in with the um, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and end with a Good Friday kind of feeling and death on the cross. That That's an interesting imagery to do yeah. in yeah. Community of Christ. So as I go through the liturgical calendar as an individual and I want to observe the holy days and the seasons of the calendar what does Palm Sunday offer me as part of my discipleship and my spiritual formation? What are some ways that I can make that real for me in my daily life? Mm-hmm. I think Palm Sunday is two things, primarily. It is movement. It's all about movement, and both liter- literally and figuratively. And it's also about the question, because everything that happens on Palm Sunday, we know how the story ends, right? So the question is, am I, how am I being, am I, am I celebrating Palm Sunday with integrity? What does it mean for me to be doing this now, um, praising Jesus as King, when every other day, and maybe even just later this afternoon, I'm going to betray Jesus. I'm going to betray those ideals, right? I'm going to choose anger over forgiveness. I'm going to choose violence over peace. I'm going to choose uh, scarcity rather than abundance, right? And whatever the whatever the the betrayal is, we're going to be like Jesus' disciples. We're going to be like the crowd. We're going to choose. Uh, we're going to choose Barabbas. We're going to put Jesus on the cross. We're going to do it over and over again. I mean, that's that's a harsh image and harsh reality. Um, but that's the stark contrast with the genuine devotion and joy we feel at Jesus entering the, not just Jerusalem, but entering the world uh, as, as a new kind of king. Right? So there's, these, there's, there's that real serious tension there. And how do you live with integrity, holding both of those things true, and yet keeping your eye on what's most important, the love of Jesus, right, rather than the betrayal? That's the, really the second point I was making about living in integrity and the, the question that Palm Sunday po- poses. Uh, the first point is that Sunday, Palm Sunday is all about movement. And from the very shape of the story, with it being a procession from one place to another, it's also th- uh, like in the plot line of the Gospels, it's moving from Jesus' ministry and his life and his teachings to the Passion, right? Which are two different 
kinds of stories and um and and the procession is as he's crossing the gates crossing the wall crossing the threshold into jerusalem it's almost like he's stepping into this next chapter and but the the tenor the tone the theology of the story it it really shifts but for us we are all we are also always right there following jesus on the donkey we're following jesus through that gate and what does it what does it mean for us to be genuine disciples and to follow Jesus, to walk on those same palm fronds or bulrushes or pussy willows, whatever it is? What does it mean for us to follow in those same footsteps and to follow that donkey, that figure who is both victorious and lowly? If there's one important image for, I think, human life, it's movement we talk about spiritual journeys or the or you know the the journey of my life for my years or you know our my another trip around the sun we say for for the year um our lives are all about journeying and palm sunday reminds us that journeying isn't just an accident that some of the steps we take are intentional and they require a choice or a decision and uh palm sunday is a time when we can reflect on that celebrate that Celebrate taking the right steps, the steps we believe in, the steps we hope for, the world we want, and yet always being stuck in the reality of facing Passion Week. Thank you, uh, Christian. I think that brings us to where we want to be, which is how does the liturgical calendar live in my discipleship? How do I reflect Mm -hmm. where we are in the story? How do I share in Christ's mission? How do I participate with others in ways that genuinely reflect the purpose and ministry and message of Jesus? So we said at the beginning that uh, you have small children at Mm -hmm. home. So if you were going to find uh, a way to share with them the meaning of Palm Sunday in their life. I mean, other than making mm-hmm. poster board palm fronds mm-hmm. on a church on Sunday, how would you share the meaning of Palm Sunday with the girls? Um, okay, so what's, what is great about Palm Sunday is that it speaks to so many different levels uh, of both theological and emotional development, cognitive development. So I have five-year-old twins, and I have a seven, almost eight-year-old uh, daughter. Uh, they're all daughters, but a singleton. So I would, I would talk to them differently because they're just different developmental levels. Uh, the five-year-olds, I would almost certainly just rely on the literal story just because that's where they are, right? And, and really build up the joy of following Jesus and really inculcate that with them. And if my congregation is not having a children's procession, I'm going to organize it myself because, dang it, I want those kids waving palm fronds, want, walking into the sanctuary, shouting Hosanna. And if we're not, you know, singing some, the, the congregation could be singing some triumphal hymn, maybe Spirit of God, like a fire is burning, something like that, right? And, and um, the, uh, the children will wave their, their palm fronds. I, I would think I would really go for the literal and play it up because this is one of those Bible stories where there's a literal story happening, which, you know, in, in some of the, in, in some other parts of the Bible, it's, it's difficult to find an actual story that the, the kids can latch onto. It's more abstract, something like that. But here, this is a lot of action and movement. And, um, I would really seize on that as an opportunity for little kids. Now, when kids are getting to be eight, um, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, you can start doing a little more abstract thought with them. And I would start talking to them about the symbolism of what Jesus is doing and talk more about um, uh, or and ask more questions about 
what do you think a good king would be or a good king would do? Uh, what do you think? And, t- and talk about the symbols of, or the, the contrast of the donkey and the horse, right? Sort of bring that in in a very sort of elementary way and use that as a springboard for having conversations for them to reflect on, on what they would want in a ruler. And I think that age group, it's less about me giving them information and more about me inviting them to do their own reflection because kids are really incisive. They're really, they, they have a really good handle on what is, is good discipleship. And it's because we taught them that, you know, in the early years when we gave them very simple stories, right? And then the, the next age level, uh, the, the next develop, developmental level, they, they, they start encountering the world and they start mirroring to us the things we taught them when they were earlier, when they were younger. And all of a sudden we have to work, we're faced with more of the realities of discipleship that we need to be held accountable to what we were teaching our kids. And so my eight-year-old daughter, my almost eight-year-old daughter, um, I think I would start asking more, like give a little bit of the context and ask her what she thinks about that and what, what that would mean uh, in that context. And then 14-year-olds and up, I think they would really seize on the ethical and discipleship tension, the, uh, the, the narrative tension that's there in the, in the, in the gospel uh, that we were talking about earlier in the podcast. Because I think teenagers, they're experts at finding hypocrisy. They're brilliant at really cutting through crap and getting, I don't know if I can say that on the podcast, but... I think it's okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, they can see through us. And they can see through our theological statements and our fancy language, right? You know, and, and they they see where the rubber hits the road. And if we're not following that, um, then they'll, and they're willing to call us on it. And I think that's like one of the gifts that teenagers bring to a congregation. And this is this this is a really great holiday for them to uh, to be able to really explore that because there's that that huge tension of you're on this cusp between everyone betraying Jesus and everyone praising Jesus. And they see that all the time. They see us every Sunday praising Jesus. And then on the way home, we get mad in traffic. Uh, we, we go to McDonald's for lunch uh, and or we go to a really expensive lunch with the church folks, but then we don't want to give a, a buck to uh, the homeless man on the corner. Right. And so there's, they see through it. And I think this would be a really great avenue for them to both explore that really find common cause with it and uh, be willing to pose some questions to the rest of us. Well, you're making me very uh, both excited for Palm Sunday (laughs) to see if the children process as you've described, but you're also uh, posing a question of integrity and accountability for me to process on Palm Mm -hmm. Sunday on where am I on that cusp between praising and living out my true devotion to Jesus or the reality of how long that lasts mm-hmm. in my own life. Yes, it's always the challenge. It yeah. is a challenge. And I would say, though, that um, one of my, like, if, if I had my fantasy ideas for, like, what I could do with a congregation, and we have, I, I really like these other traditions where they have a procession that comes in, like, the, the whole congregation starts outside of the church, and their palm fronds are blessed, or there's some sort of blessing that takes place, and it's part of the worship to actually enter the sanctuary, uh, sort of making, uh, like, uh, making 
the sanctuary, the new Jerusalem, right? This is the place where we're going to, where the rubber hits the road, right? Um, I really like that idea. And I, I would, I would love to see more of our congregation sort of incorporate that idea, whether it's the whole congregation or just part of the congregation with the kids or something or, um, what, or maybe bring, bring some symbol of the congregation in from the outside. Um, but I think if we're going to do that, it would be just as important to have at the end of the service, the reverse happen where we all process over that threshold as part of the worship to not to not let the sanctuary, not let our our four walls become the new Jerusalem, but actually see ourselves as leaving the sanctuary where we're all formed as disciples and actually entering the new Jerusalem, which is the world outside of our walls. And that's the world where the the, the tension is, the, the questions of integrity are, that's where the real choices are, and that's where we have the choice. Are we going to are we going to uh, praise Jesus or crucify him? Uh, and sometimes both at the same time. And are we going to, that's because in the real world is where we're going to have those choices to it make. Is. It is as we engage in our, uh, as we engage in our daily discipleship, but also as we seek to engage in the mission of Christ and what that yeah. means in the world and living in a very countercultural way. Well, Christian, I appreciate um, all of the insight that you've brought to our discussion about Palm Sunday. Are there any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave us with um, about this particular holy day in the liturgical calendar? Get people out of their seats. If there's one Sunday in the year that justifies getting people to stand up and move around in the congregation, these people should not be sitting the whole time. Uh, they should not be in the same place for the whole service. All right. You heard it here first. <laughs> I wanted to close with uh, part of a prayer that was written by Pamela Grenfell Smith, and I found in a text called Women's Uncommon Prayers, Our Lives Revealed, Nurtured, Celebrated. Passion Sunday. We worship here in freedom and in peace. No alien idols mar the holy place. No Roman legionnaires patrol the streets, and on our coin, no stamp of Caesar's face. Fortunate people in a pleasant land. We claim deliverance by God's mighty hand. Yet, when the hungry turn to us for food, and when the lonely watch with longing eyes, our easy hands may struggle to do good, but sin stands strong against our sacrifice as though some hidden Caesar, still in place, condemns the ransomed holy world to waste. And so we listen for the joyful shout that calls us to the palms and the parade. Hosanna, son of David, lead us out of all the prisons we and Caesar made while we were happy to be fed and blessed, but turned aside before you reached the cross. We'll close our discussion of Palm Sunday with that, and I'll remind you that the next podcast for Common Grounds we'll be sharing with Pamela Cress on Monday, Thursday. Thank you, Christian. Thank you. This has been great.
The views expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official views of the Latter-day Seekers team or of Community of Christ. The music has been provided by Ben Howington. You can find his music at mormonguitar.com. Thank you.